Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HBC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Put Your Heart Into It, the HVC podcast. Um, I think we have a really exciting episode today. We have um, a guest who's also a good friend, uh, Dr. Spencer Lee, who is the ICU medical director at Northside Cherokee. Amongst his multiple hats, he also is uh, on the med exec board at Northside Cherokee and, um, you know, was really instrumental in our uh, hospital's response to COVID-19 in 2020 and, uh, and, and from then on, and really, I think, helped us, helped our patients in a very challenging time. So uh, proud to invite him here. Uh, I've known him for many years. Uh, we, he goes by Slee, and he's a very mean uh, fantasy football player as well. Oh, uh, so, <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I deserve all of that, but um, no, happy to be here and uh, uh, we'll enjoy doing it, I'm sure. The thing the thing that I think we want to talk about um, that's a little bit different, that's I think been around for a few years um, and the data as well as the access to it has changed, has been um, acute procedures for patients with pulmonary embolism, um, whether it be, um, you know, is usually endovascular treatment, sometimes it's TPA. And this is something that's now available 24-7, definitely at Northside Cherokee. I'm not sure at the other campuses. And Dr. Lee can give us an overview of that program. Yeah, so basically in a little bit of background here in regards to the pulmonary critical care world, there's been a big push um, to basically standardize uh, the way we treat and kind of triage pulmonary embolisms. There was historically a period of time where PE mortality and VTE mortality was on the downswing, and then that started actually going uh, the opposite way. And the whole evolution of how, how to deal with pulmonary embolisms as technology uh, evolves and we learn more about it. Um, it started all the way back in, I want to say 2020, the whole PERT concept, which is the pulmonary embolism response team. It was developed at Mass General. And then kind of throughout the nation, uh, systems have slowly kind of picked up on that. And it probably to give the uh, cardiac guys credit, uh, and Dr. Bott, obviously you live uh, much more obviously in that world. It, it was basically going to model, you know, STEMI care or acute heart care. Meaning if for STEMI, there's a very kind of strict time uh, guidelines, very clear recommendations in regards of what to do with that. Same with like acute aortic ruptures. You know, there's a lot of things cardiac wise where there's pretty clear definitions and what uh, what to do for pulmonary embolisms. It seemed to be across the board and it really depended where that patient showed up, what the hospital capabilities were. And as the evidence continued to evolve and we saw the background changes and some of the increases in mortality. And um, I appreciate the plug for COVID. That was kind of my world there for a few years. But that's kind of what kicked off a lot of per programs throughout the nation in regards to just the VTE the venous thromboembolism incidents in regards to that. So everyone saw uh, PEs and DVTs go up. 
And again, trying to triage those people and treat them in a standardized kind of approach. So we, again, over the past several years, have been in discussions in regards to starting our team here at Cherokee. Uh, there's obviously a lot of moving pieces and logistics in regards to that that had to fall into place. Um, but now we are kind of up and going and um, it will be a kind of system wide measure. So then hopefully it will be standardized uh, throughout the north side system in regards to um, treatment and triage for all the pulmonary embolism patients that we see. What is the um, uh, so what is the type of patient you would look for? Um, I, I know at one time that was considered the number one cause of inpatient mortality was P.E., and this is, you know, aging myself a little bit, but, you know, before the time of really standard, um, you know, DVT prophylaxis. Um, so who is the patient we're looking for? And do you expect more inpatients or, or people coming through the ER? Yeah, so that's very true. And I don't want to date myself either, but all of that was before my time. <laughs> but um, I actually trained under Robert Rashke, who came up with the heparin DVT protocol. Um, in regards to prophylaxis in the inpatient setting. And the majority of these cases nowadays, because of those sort of protocols being implemented, historically speaking, the vast majority of these are patients coming in from the emergency department. We will periodically um, have some inpatients, but it would probably be about 80% that we see coming in through the emergency department versus about 20% that are on the floor that may be there for a you know post-surgical or some other risk factor that ends up with a pulmonary embolism but most of these are, are definitely coming through the emergency department. So say, um, so say then a patient comes through the emergency emergency room, and um, they have a presentation with acute PE. Um, what would be the next steps for the PER team? Yeah. So how uh, we have implemented it, and again, very similar with a little bit of nuances, probably a different uh, systems, is basically to say once we have identified a pulmonary embolism. Um, from a CTA, then if that patient is deemed to be at a higher risk is where kind of the PERT team meeting and the whole uh, algorithm would begin. We risk stratify all of these people with pulmonary embolisms. Um, there's several different scoring systems out there. Most people are very uh, used to hearing the word PESI, P-E-S-I, or simplified PESI. There's a BOVA score and a few other scores that have come out as well. And basically saying, you know, is this person, you know, a 20 year old on no oxygen where we've kind of backed into this diagnosis and very low risk in regards to moving forward? Or is this someone that's more intermediate or high risk? Now, the risk stratification scoring systems, uh, the PESI is a little bit more compre uh, comprehensive and more labor intensive to calculate, especially from the emergency department setting. Um, but it is from a simplified PESI approach. Uh, much more uh, simplistic. Um, it involves basically age, cardiopulmonary background, like as far as heart or lung disease, heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, et cetera, in regards to saying, hey, are you at risk um, from a mortality standpoint with this current pulmonary embolism diagnosis? So as soon as you hit the door, if you have a PE, we should be able to tell you whether you are kind of low risk, intermediate, or high. And the PERT kind of sweet spot, if you will, and where the gray area in our world is, is this intermediate and specifically intermediate high. So the intermediate was this big kind of group of patients that then got subdivided because it's, it's very broad, meaning if you're low risk, um, you're hemodynamically stable, your blood work looks fine, your echo looks fine, 
then everyone would agree you're low risk and you just get kind of the standard treatment, which would be anticoagulation. If you're high risk, meaning you're hypotensive, uh, meaning your systolic blood pressure is less than 90 or way off from your normal or your like peri-arrest or cardiac arrest, everyone would quickly agree that that's a TPA candidate and that should be the um, answer almost universally unless there's a contraindication. But this intermediate category has always been the gray area. What do we do for those people where you're at probably a little bit higher risk, but you're not peri-arrest, cardiac arrest kind of status, like a massive PE? What do we do for that group? And those options have always been just do the standard kind of anticoagulation, uh, do a little bit more in regards to TPA and whether that's full dose TPA, half dose TPA. And that's where the world of the endovascular procedures have come into play in regards to thrombectomies and thrombolysis. So the ECOS catheters, the Inari catheters um, have kind of uh, wiggled their way into that category in regards to the intermediate and specifically the intermediate high risk. Now at Northside Cherokee, um, if you or the ER or whoever that might be can activate basically a PERT response. So they say, hey, you have a PE. I believe you are at least an intermediate, if not higher risk. Our risk stratification outside of the PESI um, is basically we just need three pieces of information. That would be an echocardiogram, a BNP, and a troponin. That is enough basically for us to tell you what your kind of risk of mortality is. In the low risk, I mean, you're talking a couple percent chance uh, for mortality. If, once you get into the intermediate or high risk, that can be pushing 40 to 50 percent. So it does make a drastic difference clinically. Um, but with an echo BNP and troponin, uh, very quickly, we'd be able to tell um, where that risk lies. Obviously, hemodynamically, they're right in front of you. You know, if they're on 100% oxygen or if they're needing vasopressor support or if their heart rate's 150, you know, that uh, information definitely goes into the PESI score and will deem them intermediate or higher. Um, and then we take into account the ECHO, the BMP, and troponin as well. Um, and that's been really shown that more of those you have, of those three categories, the higher your risk is as well. So someone would then say, hey, I believe you're in this risk. I would like a PERT response. Um, it then gets called directly to uh, the critical care team. We are kind of the uh, PERT um, main leader, if you will, in regards to activating everyone else. So we gather the information, see the patient, um, confirm kind of what we believe their risk to be, and then coordinate the care um, with our multidisciplinary PERT team. And the team that we assembled at Cherokee is basically a five-wheel team. And you'll see, or if you Google PERT, you know, some places, all out mass general academic places, their PERT team might have 20 different people on there. Um, at our institute, um, we kind of settled on five with um, the critical care being the main team lead, uh, a pharmacist, an interventionalist, and cardiology, and specifically cardiology in regards to the echocardiogram and telling us the information in regards to that and then the primary care physician of that patient. We wanted to make sure to include them to say, hey, you have talked to the patient, you're invested in their care, you know, we want you involved along with the rest of the team. And so once um, we have gathered all the information, we would then present um, via uh, a Zoom, protected Zoom link, um, all the patient information and get everyone's input in regards to those key areas and make uh, treatment and triage decisions from there. Sorry, that what? Um, oh no, that's great. That's great. I actually didn't know that there was still a place for TPA, and I didn't know that there's the STEMI world. There's something called facilitated PCI, where you give a little bit of TPA and still do a cath. Um, the problem is a lot of bleeding. With this procedure, it may be 
okay because even with a half dose or a full dose, you're doing venous access. So the bleeding is a lot less. So it may be, there may be still a place for that. Um, the um, what, so the three things from cardiology looks like are a BNP, which obviously is a lab that looks at, you know, heart failure, strain on the myocardium, could also be from RV strain. The troponin, um, which obviously indicates ischemia or strain as well. If it's a pure PE, it's probably not ACS. It's probably not a heart blockage, but obviously a troponin from the RV strain. Mm-hmm. And then the echoes. So what are the, obviously two of those is lab parameters, but just maybe run through the values that you'd be, that would change your sort of uh, decision tree and then what you look for on the echo. That'd be very important for us. Yeah, so as far as the BNP and troponin, basically any abnormality, again, we would definitely say even probably a low end from a heart failure standpoint, but even a BNP of 100, um, we would consider it to be positive, but any abnormal value, to be honest, the same with troponin. Again, if it's like a, a 1.0, a 5.0, I'm sure we would take that a little bit more the, to heart than like the 0.06s and things like that. But any abnormality, we would um, consider that to be abnormal and that that would count as far as your risk stratification um, on either one of those. Um, the echocardiogram, um, as you mentioned, would be purely right-sided changes. Uh, we look a lot at the RVSP numbers, the TAPC numbers, uh, the ratio, um, and whether that's on the echo or the CT. Those from a, again, non-cardiac standpoint, um, we would be looking at, again, if we see pure McConnell, you know, the apex, things like that. Um, but any RVSP elevation, TAPC that's down, any RVLV ratio that's abnormal, those would key us in to say, well, yeah, this would be very consistent with classic kind of RV strain. And again, kind of put it into the bucket with a higher risk. And most of the time, and I don't want to say every time, but it's very difficult to have an echo that would look especially that drastic in a QPE and have normal, normal, normal BNP and troponins. Not that it can't happen. Um, but we do see a little bit of like a troponin and BNP sometimes with normal echoes, kind of the other way around. And so that obviously we take to heart a little bit more to say, hey, you know, there's something there in the background from a biomarker standpoint, but the echocardiogram luckily uh, looks normal at this time. But most of the time when you're talking McConnell's, RVSPs that are, you know, 40, 50, TAPSIs that are low, you know, we're seeing that background biomarker uh, be elevated as well. So I think just to review, like, what we need to look for on the echo, uh, because I think we'll be in that situation. you know, it looks like not any one particular information or number, but rather um, rather like a combination of things. So how do we look at RV strain? Yes, we look at RV size. Yes, we look at the, you know, right ventricular systolic pressure, usually calculated from a little bit of tricuspid regurge, probably look at the degree of tricuspid regurge. McConnell sign, just to refresh our memory, is right ventricular free wall hypokinesis um, and then the 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 apex is working okay um, that's a sign of pe and tapsy is tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion so our techs are really good about measuring that all these things so it doesn't sound like any one thing is going to be going to be the most important but it's it's a combination of those things we're not just looking at RV size, RV function. I think there's more than that. 
Um, As you're mentioning, they, you know, we have a lot of people uh, that have elevated BMIs, you know, and maybe they have underlying sleep apnea that's not diagnosed and maybe their RVSP is normally like 40s or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it truly is, as you're mentioning, there isn't a a number for any of these things, but it's kind of putting it all together uh, with the other uh, patient uh, clinical characteristics. Now, sorry, and these abnormalities are going to push you towards the procedure. So these abnormalities, basically, if you have, especially if you have an echo finding and any of the other BMP troponins, which we would expect if we have like a legitimate um, echo finding, that would put you into the intermediate high risk category. Again, that is still kind of a quote unquote gray area where most of us feel like we should do more than just the standard anticoagulation. Now, is it wrong just to do standard anticoagulation? No. And that's where the procedures, TPA, half-dose TPA, all those kind of elements come into play, specifically the intermediate high risk, meaning echo plus one of the biomarkers, or if you had a high risk and you have a contraindication to TPA. That's kind of the sweet spot where we get the most benefit from PERT Obviously, PERT can be, you know, activated for any number of reasons, but the intermediate high and the contraindication to TPA when you're high risk, those are where clinically there's not a right or wrong answer and the evidence isn't clear as to what the best approach is. But um, that is where a lot of the endovascular procedures are at least discussed um, and considered. Um, And the only reason why I said uh, for sure, you know, it doesn't mean you automatically get an endovascular procedure is, you know, maybe these clots are all segmental, subsegmental, and too far out, you know, um, and it's not amendable to that. Or maybe, you know, you do have an INR that's eight or something, which again, will probably be uh, medically impossible with a big PE. But, you know, if there is some sort of glaring reason why they can't do it from a technical standpoint, um, but it would be in the discussion um, and that intermediate high risk for sure. So, so that's great. And then I think then the procedure we could talk about a little bit, at least at Northside Cherokee, I think it's interventional radiology doing it, if I'm not wrong. Um, but it could be in different institutions, could be vascular uh, surgery, could be interventional cardiology. Um, and I'm not sure if critical care does it at some institutions. It's from what I, I, I've heard, it's not a very difficult procedure because um, it's it's venous access. It's getting into the femoral vein going up, like just like a right heart cath, like we do all the time, or a swan, and then going into the pulmonary arteries with something called Ecos catheter, which um, acoustically breaks up the clot. It infuses TPA, but just a little bit, certainly less than IV dose, and it breaks up the clot, and it takes, I think, 15 to 30 minutes or so. Yeah, and so I can speak to that. So... Uh, you're exactly right. So all the endovascular procedures, basically like, you know, a glorified right heart cath uh, or a swan, there's two main players in that world. And one is the ECOS um, catheter, which is uh, kind of directed or catheter. We call both of them like CDT, but catheter directed therapy, but uh, catheter directed thrombolysis, um, where you can put TPA directly in there and also has an ultrasound where it feels like it breaks up the clot a little bit more. What we have kind of shifted to, and it it feels like throughout the U.S., um, has kind of been the same. Again, not with a whole bunch of uh, evidence as of now, but I believe there's studies kind of in the background that are trying to tease this out. It's just something that uh, we call a suction thrombectomy. It's made by Inari, um, the one that we use. Again, same approach, same everything, but you actually 
uh, use suction and remove the actual clots um, from both sides. So basically you just need access to the right and left. And then there's a suction device where you would mechanically get rid of these clots right then and there. Then the actual catheter is removed at the time. Um, and then they go back to wherever they were in the hospital or ICU, intermediate care, et cetera. So the suction device um, has gained a lot of popularity. We used to have a different one five to eight years ago, which didn't pan out too well. But with the Inari system, it's almost like you see immediate results uh, for a lot of people. Again, the evidence, and just to be clear, the evidence for any of the endovascular therapies is only really to bring down the PA pressures, so the pulmonary artery pressures. Um, and that can be measured at the same time as the procedure. Or if you're talking about RVSPs, you know, if you're 50, 60 on your RVSP, then we fully expect that to be lower um, after this procedure. Um, but it is pretty drastic in regards to even like oxygen. If someone went down for a, a suction thrombectomy and they're on five or eight liters, very commonly we get them almost off oxygen immediately, like on the table. So they seem to have very rapid clinical response. Um, as you can imagine, you're physically getting rid of a um, blood clot or a, the vast majority of it. Uh, I'm sure um, in regards to the other kind of fancy options that I didn't mention, which was like uh, ECMO or like surgical um, thrombectomies, uh, this is obviously way more tolerated, but you still get kind of this immediate response, whereas you're actively removing that, kind of de-stressing the heart, if you will. And so we've had a lot of good success with the Inari, and that's what the Northside system um, has used throughout. And I think a lot of the bigger systems have kind of moved to that um, at this time until we get a little bit more answers about the ECOs versus the suction. Um, but it is uh, pretty remarkable about the immediacy of the response. It's very helpful. I think, you know, we, and we may never have that amount of data, like on like, say, STEMI data, you know, we may never have that amount of data. It sort of reminds a little bit of the, um, you know, the stroke stroke data, you know, of, of doing like clot retrieval for strokes, you know, you, it, it definitely helps people. And if, you know, I had a stroke or a intermediate risk PE, God forbid, I would, I would want this, you know, but is it, you know, we may never have the data, but I think we're doing what's right for people. And it's good that it's a, it's a decision tree. There are several people involved. Um, which campuses at Northside is this available uh, at? Would you know that by chance, Spencer? Yeah, so it's available everywhere. So um, it is available at the legacy campuses and out of Gwinnett. So we do offer it everywhere. And to the point about the evidence, I, it seems like this world is hard, but there is there's a big group called the PERT Consortium that basically is a huge database. And they're pushing a lot of these studies. And again, as you mentioned, head-to-head -head studies on devices are very difficult. Um, but there's been rumors that at least there will be an ECOS versus something and maybe a head-to-head -head between the uh, catheter-directed thrombolysis versus the suction thrombectomy. So at least in our world, we're hopeful that that might pan out. But like you said, uh, no one's holding their breath. But there is a big push in our world that in the future, like this will be something very much graded like STEMI, that uh, hospitals will very much care about times and things like that. So having a good handle on the data and the evidence is definitely a decent push. So we're hopeful that um, we will get further evidence in regards to that. But we do offer this uh, procedure 24-7 everywhere. I'd imagine the the volume of, of these, at least the PEs, I'm not sure every they're all getting the procedure, but the volume of PEs is probably similar to the STEMI volume. Like maybe um, probably five to, eight to ten a month, maybe. Oh yeah, so like at our campus, uh, we don't. As far as like the PE and doing this actual procedure, you're probably talking a couple a month between mm -hmm. 
all of our campuses for sure it'd be you know 10 or so so not as many um, compared to the STEMIs at this point but it's even been shown like once people make a PERT um, this procedure actually will go up just because now more people are talking about it and considering it so we have seen that and again um, I guess I talk more from a legacy, like the three campus sites, we have definitely seen that. There's been way more calls for it um, and we are doing it more and more. And again, that seems to be on the same level as our evidence and what kind of the push is nationally. So I think it's just going to keep expanding and keep increasing. You know, are we ever going to get to the STEMI point? Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, depends on uh, who's invested in this, but it definitely is uh, only increasing as we move forward. Well, I think that's really helpful, uh, Spencer. I appreciate the time. I think this was very educational. Anything else you want to add? Um, I think we could, um, you know, definitely get this out to everyone. And I think everybody learn from it and find the right patients. No, for sure. And like I said, uh, I'm always available for any uh, discussions, uh, questions, issues, anything like that. So, uh, no, I appreciate the time. And uh, no, hopefully it explained kind of our process and what we're doing for our patient care. And look forward to the future. Well, it's very helpful to know how we can help um, when we read the echoes, stat echoes, and what what they're looking for on the echo. And it does certainly help, um, you know, make a very important decision. So uh, thank you very much. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another cardiology-focused episode.